0: Well, Kapil Dave decided to put the Australians in after winning the toss. The two umpires are Dickie Bird of England and David Archer of the West Indies. And we pick up the action in the first over, the fifth ball being bowled by Kapil Dave to boom. Kapil Dave. And that is well, extremely well tucked away. Square then
1: performed four in his little that is the beginning of the first World Cup not being played in England. After three editions, it suddenly occurred to the other nations in the world that they could also host this tournament. In some ways, this was the last World Cup in the old one-day international way. The tournament was played in whites with a red ball. The next tournament would be a Technicolor Dream in Australia. This is a report from England on the tournament, and you can tell how well they took to the fact that it was being hosted by India and Pakistan
2: where traditionally volatile crowds, lively wickets and very humid weather are all expected to make this the most unpredictable competition of them all. There's also, of course, the daily risk of illness. And so England were delighted today when both Philip De Freitas and John Embry were past fit to face West Indies in England's first match in Group B in
1: Gujranwala It's incredible to think that people were still broadcasting like this at that stage. But while this was the last World Cup in the old way, it was also the first World Cup of the beginning of a new cricket world. India, the new world champions, would be hosting. And while it didn't feel like it back then, this was actually the beginning of that new era of cricket where India and also Pakistan would start to take over the game. So the Indians' first match were up against Australia. And while no one saw the Aussies as favourite for this tournament, they were probably the first side to really prepare properly for a World Cup. They arrived in Chennai nine days before the first match just to get themselves ready. They banned alcohol between matches, quite a big thing for Australian cricketers. And both of these things at the times were ridiculed, especially as no one thought Australia were a chance to win the tournament anyway. They were not a good team, they'd just lost a home Ashes, and they hadn't yet overcome the loss of Chapel Marsh-Lily Triumvirate. Of course, a year earlier they had been in Chennai as well. That was for the second ever tied Test, and the Aussies were also thinking about that, but also quite a few methods of placing the balls into gaps and running the opposition ragged, using Jeff Marsh as an anchor and fielding at a level that cricket had just not seen before from a total team unit. In that first match, they put on a decent innings. Australia batted first and made 268. And that was then changed to 270 at the change of innings when the Aussies complained Ravi Shastri had called a 6, a 4. For India, this was a massive game. Not only were they hosting and also the defending champions, but it was also the last tournament that Sunil Gavaska would be playing in. And he came out and played some shots as well, scoring 37 from 32 balls, meaning that he scored more runs in this innings than he did in the opening World Cup match in 1975, and from 142 fewer deliveries. Outside of his cameo, it was Chris Shrikant, perhaps one of the first true dashing style players to open in ODIs. He made 70 from 83, while at the other end, Navjot Sidhu made 73 from 79. It meant that India were ahead in the chase and they needed 70 runs off the last 15 overs to win. It was then that Craig McDermott took over. At that stage, he was one of the fastest bowlers in the world, a big ginger quick who ran hot and cold. For instance, McDermott's first four overs went for 31 runs. And he didn't make the breakthroughs just with speed, but also through slower balls. He bowled the off cutters while at the other end, Steve Warren and Simon O'Donnell bowled back of the hand slower balls. These days, this is all very common but this is right at the start of both of those deliveries and having 3 bowlers with this much change of pace was unheard of McDermott went through Navjot Singh he then added Dilip Vensaka, Mohammad Azuddin and Ravi Shashri as India collapsed to 246 for 6 Kapil Dev was then taken by Simon O'Donnell and they lost Roger Binney to a run out it meant that India needed 14 runs with two wickets in hand
0: Caught by Doon, playing a little too early and too far across, and India a bit of trouble now. A massive to the winning easily, slipping out of their hands. Binny comes in and they've out yet. Binny is lovely. Throw there, a direct throw by Doon hits the
1: middle stump. India had one more run out in them, but they kept crawling towards the total. And when Steve War was bowling that last over, Kieran More was out in the middle with Maninder Singh. Australia needed one wicket. India, six runs. Meninda was on strike.
0: We we'll love this there, it's a War comes in and this is last man in. Meninda goes two.
1: War was an all-rounder with a big kicking slow ball. But he wasn't really the sort of bowler to blast through the tail. But he did have a sneaky Yorker when needed.
0: Four runs and five balls required. Wicket in hand one. War comes in. And they go for two, so it is now two runs required and two balls. And you really can't get much closer than this.
1: So Meninda was on strike, and War had to stop the scoring entirely. And while Meninda had been clever so far, as often happens, the pressure was back on the tailender as much as the bowler.
0: He's feeling a bit nervous, two balls to go. he make it in singles. No, he doesn't. He goes for the wide swing on his ball. And Australia won this match, a tremendous
1: effort. Sadly, it was an anti-climax for the reigning champs and hosts of the tournament. But this was one hell of a game to open the first non-English World Cup. Oh, and also, remember what I told you before. At one stage, Dean Jones had a big hit, and Shastri said it was a four, and the Aussies claimed it was a six. So at the break, Kapil Dev agreed to give Australia two more runs. And remember that Australia won by a single run. What a start to a tournament. Welcome to Double Century, the podcast about the history of cricket. This season we are celebrating the Cricket World Cup, and we will have an episode on all the older tournaments. This episode we are looking at 1987. In some ways the last of the old tournaments, but very much the first one of the new modern world as well.
3: Prizepicks will match your first deposit up to hundred dollars. Just visit Prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at Prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to hundred dollars. Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. The second match of the
1: tournament had New Zealand up against Zimbabwe. The Kiwis sprung a surprise on everyone when they sent out their bowler, Martin Snedden to open on a bit of a wet wicket. He would score 64, his only ODI 50 while doing so. New Zealand would go on to make 242, largely on the back of Martin Crow's 72 from 88 balls. They thought that was a pretty good score. It was humid, and so the ball was doing quite a bit. Sadly for Zimbabwe, they fell to 104 for 7. Two Zimbabweans made it past 20, and one of those was a number 8 named Ian Butchart, who made 54. The other was Dave Houghton, who made 142 runs from 137 balls. The rest of the card read 1, 5, 12, 4, 5, 2, 1, Diamond Duck, and 4 not out. Butchart and Houghton together, at one end you have an incredible technician with a bat. And at the other, you had the sort of player who would have been a fantastic bowler who could hit at number eight in your favourite T20 side. And these two had nothing to lose, and their plan was simply not to get bowled out for 120. They passed that, and then some. New Zealand had three spinners, so Houghton reverse swept them over and over again, not to mention backing right away just to cut from his stumps.
0: Jackfield dice there. Uh, Houghton making the bowling look easy.
1: Jackfield from the end to him. The biggest problem for Zimbabwe was it was an incredibly hot day and Houghton was also wicket keeping and had now made more than half of their runs. He was exhausted. So after six sixes and 13 fours, Martin Crow caught him with a stunner, meaning that Zimbabwe needed 22 for victory. Remember that diamond duck I mentioned before? Well, the hero of 1992 for Zimbabwe, Edo Brandis, had watched a 117-run partnership, and he came out to stand at the non-strikers' end and was run out while he snapped his hamstring from running his first single. He was out of the game and the tournament. Now John Tracos had to come out and bat. He was their captain and off-spinner, and he played for South Africa in the 1960s, but he was never in all of those many years that he played considered much of a batter. So it was really down to Butchart. New Zealand were using their spinner Stephen Bock at the death, and Butchart decided to try and end it with a big hit. So when he was hit on the pad slogging, he stood his ground so he could face the next ball. But Trakos ran. And while there was a single there, it wasn't so much about that, just that there was a massive miscommunication.
0: Three balls to go, sorry, and four runs to get. And he swings, and they go, and they stop, and they go, and that, I'm afraid... It's a rather sad end to a wonderful effort, a tremendous effort.
1: New Zealand ran out Butchart and Zimbabwe were three runs short. And I don't know if any World Cup ever had two matches this good to start their tournament. Sadly for Zimbabwe, they would actually not win a single match throughout this series. And even New Zealand would only win two themselves. But they also lost a match to Australia by only three runs. And all three of these matches were on one side of the draw. But the other side had some fun as well. West Indies played England, and the West Indies compiled 243, and 92 of those runs came in the final 10 overs.
2: This is just the impetus in the tail end of the West Indies innings that Viv Richards wanted. Disappointing for England that having pegged them back for so long, things have just slipped away for them in this last session. And another no ball, and a four, turning out to be quite an unprofessional performance by... Pringle. It's Pringle's fifth no-ball, and he also, uh, having reinforced the onside field, bowls to the
1: offside. uh... I actually think it's worth stopping to mention here that Pringle bowled a Yorker on the stumps, and it was not a bad ball at all. But the West Indians were batting brilliantly, and Roger Harper still managed to squeeze it away through backward point, and that over would go for 22 runs. And even with all that hitting, the West Indies still only had a modest total. Graham Gooch and Mike Ganning kept England strong even if the progress was sedate. 96 for two after 26 overs. Then Carl Hooper took three wickets with medium pace and England added to their own problems with a run out. Well, that was Downton. uh,
2: fall. Downton has gone a run out. Alan Lamb can't believe it. And really, you have to blame Downton. Although the ball went behind the stumps, Lamb was never in a position of composure or control. He had no start on the run at all and was left really with his back to the action. So that really was a bad cricket by England.
1: England got behind the rate and they needed 91 runs from the final 10 with Alan Lamb standing as their last specialist batter. But this was the best of Lamb. If your uncle has ever talked about how good he was, it was probably this era that he is discussing. For instance, there was a game where England needed 18 off the final over against Bruce Reid, the best left-arm bowler in the world at that time. At that stage, Reid had 26 for 1 off his 9 coming into the last over. Lamb chased the 18 down in only 5 balls. 2, 4, 6, 2, 4. You have to understand how rare this was in cricket at the time. Everyone knew about the story, and that would include the West Indies, who were still massively in front in this game. Even with three overs to go, England still needed 34 runs. But Lamb kept going, and he took it to the final over. The bowler there would be a young Courtney Walsh. He was obviously talented, but not very experienced. And this would not even be his only last over Trembler for this World Cup. But here he is to Alan Lamb for this match. And now
2: England 231 for 8, require... 13 runs of six balls, these to be bowled by Courtney Walsh. He has to keep those four fielders, and himself, and keeper inside the 30 yards. Runs in, bows to Lamb, who whacks that away to deep mid in his favourite spot, which is now guarded. Foster must run and slide in his bat, which he does. Two of the first ball. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The Yorker became a full toss. Lamb was waltzing down outside leg stump. A very awkward bounce for the fielder who dived valiantly. I don't know why all this description, all I mean to say, is England got four. Seven runs required of four balls. Two thirty-seven for eight, the England score. Adam Lamb is sixty-six. And Courtney Walsh is not enjoying it. And who would blame him What pressure on him too? On the left side, four wide, four wide. So the extra ball comes as well. Three runs required of four balls. Two to win for England, beat the West Indies in their first World Cup encounter. West Indies have played it so tight, it's taken extreme brilliance by Lamb to get us to this position. It's in the gap. It's there. Well played, Foster. And down go the heads of the West Indians. They've played it so well, but but taken by the brilliance of Lamb. And see how Richards is the first to shake Lamb's
1: hand. Alan Lamb was a finisher before we had that term. Truly extraordinary talent for someone who, in the end, didn't have an incredible record. But Walsh is the other part of this story. We know he goes on to be a legend. But in this tournament, he had to bowl two massive overs, as I mentioned. Pakistan had already played in some close games in this World Cup. They had bowled out England and Sri Lanka, and they had won by 15 and 18 runs at each. The West Indies took them on in Lahore, and after a pretty decent start, Imran Khan came on and ripped out a set Viv Richards, and he was backed up by another young fast bowler called Wazim Akram. Before Imran destroyed the tail, the West Indies could only manage 216 runs but Pakistan lost regular wickets all the way through. Our main protagonist, Walsh, was their best, taking Salim Malik, Ijaz Ahmed, and Imran Khan on his way to form wickets, meaning that the tail was left on their own to chase this total. The great leg spinner Abdul Qadir was doing his best, but Pakistan needed 14 runs of the last over. This is just not a thing you would expect any tail to do in a chase in 1987, but this is exactly when Abdul Qadir started hitting.
2: Gets one of them. Salim Jao for his game for a second, and they are running it. No. Nope. They are home for a two. Just made it.
1: The two they got was actually from an overthrow and probably should have been a run out with a better throw. And that would have been the game, because Pakistan only had one wicket in hand.
0: Wallace to Abdul Qadir.
2: Five, we'll signals
1: a six. Just calling this a six does not do this justice. Walsh went for a Yorker and gets his length wrong, but he also followed Kadir, who played a slog drive from a half-volley outside leg stump over long off. And of course, it clears the short boundary as well. He plays a similar shot next ball and picks up two as he slices this one out on the offside. This meant that Pakistan needed two runs from the last ball to win, and the West Indies needed a dot or a wicket.
2: Twelve runs have so far been scored in the last over. now to The field has come in. Well, yes, that's a warning to Salim think.
1: A warning for what, you might say? run out at the non-striker's end because Selim Jaffa, the number 11, was sprinting as Walsh came in.
2: That's a very good gesture. Yes, very good gesture. The ball is in play as soon as the bowler starts his run And the batsmen have to be in their respective treason.
1: The West Indian fast bowler could have won the match right then and there, and he would have been well within his rights. But Walsh warned him and just headed back to his mark to bowl the last delivery.
2: for Pakistan two runs been scored. Pakistan 217 tonight and Richard does not
1: please at all The West Indies would eventually win three matches in this World Cup and their run rate was better than England's. All they needed was that one wicket but they knocked back the card. but maybe more importantly the person who couldn't close out the last two overs would go on to be one of the greatest bowlers in the history of our sport. If Walsh had won either of these matches, England would not have made the finals, which of course matters more because they became a major part of the narrative of this tournament. They get through a semi-final against India and their opponents would only be the other team to beat India in this tournament, Australia. So at Eden Gardens, you had England and Australia, two teams without a World Cup win and about 95,000 spectators to watch them battle it out. Weirdly enough, the surface was looked after by Les Burnett, an Adelaide Oval curator who was thought to be the best in the world at that time. Australia batted first, and this time it was David Boone who batted long. But it was not easy for the top three to score runs. Boone made 75, Jones and Marsh 24 and 33, but at a strike rate of 49 and 58. It meant that Australia used Craig McDermott to come in as a pinch hitter, and he scored 14 from 8, but it was actually Mike Valletta who did the best scoring with a 45 from 31. played. Revelation, Michael that innings helped give Australia a decent 2-5-3 total. No team in this World Cup had chased that many runs yet and also no one had actually passed 250 against England. Australia thought they were in control. Even more so when England lost a wicket in the first over. But Bill Athie put on a good partnership first with Graham Gooch and then later with Mike Gatting and England were halfway there around the 30 over mark with eight wickets in hand. At this point, Alan Border, the Australian captain, had played 160 ODI matches, and in them he averaged 7.3 balls a game. He managed to take 27 wickets with those balls, and in 1987, he'd already played 22 ODIs and yet only had four wickets. To say he was a part-timer is completely pushing it. Australia had already used their five frontline bowlers, but Tim May's off-spin was getting hit, and so Border had to stand up. Gatting was on 41 from 44 at this point and he was carrying a heavy load in this chase. But he was also playing a very risky game.
2: Lucky Gatting just escaped. That's in the air. I drove six. Steve Hall caught it brilliantly and as he caught it, he was taken across the line with it. And there's some excitement
1: for this crowd. That cut was almost caught by Greg Dyer, the Australian keeper, who was diving. Then Gadding smashed Tim May down the throat of Steve War, who was a brilliant outfielder, but seems like he stood on the rope, a little bit like Trent Bolt in the 2019 final. But then this happened. Border has his shirt unbuttoned. He's coming around the wicket to Gatting, who is batting in a white floppy hat, and Greg Dyer is dressed the same.
2: Mike Gatting trying to play the reverse sweep shot. That's the first time he's made a mistake on this turn when he's played it. So what a breakthrough
1: for Alan Border. The ball was just too full to reverse sweep, and also either Border saw him get into position or just accidentally pulled the ball down leg. And so Gatting has to play a very half-hearted reverse, which is more of a paddle from the wrong position. It takes the edge or maybe even the toe of his bat and it flies up slowly, gently out towards where a short point would be, but Dyer springs from behind the wicket and takes a very simple catch. It is important to put this in context. The reverse sweep was just beginning to catch on in cricket. Clearly the shot had been around since the Muhammad brothers had brought it in, but this was the time it was hitting the mainstream. Now think about how conservative English cricket was then. This was the opposite shot to that kind of mindset. You could make the argument that this shot actually ruined English ODI cricket because in playing it and getting flat for it, England players just didn't take as many risks as other teams would do throughout the 90s. This shot plays at least a small part in why they went from a team who made the final of the World Cup three out of the first five editions to the biggest joke in the format. But what about the man himself? Mike Gatting got caught having an affair as an England captain and he also played cricket in apartheid South Africa. And I do not say this lightly. There were people in English cricket who found it easier to forgive him over the rebel tour to South Africa than for playing this shot. But Australia had still not won the game at this point because in walked Alan Lamb. Uh,
2: fine shot there by Alan Lamb. Alan Bought give a bit of weight. And just beating the fielders down at the square third
1: man. This meant that England was still in the match, and everyone in this World Cup knew that Australia had to stop Lamb. But they needed Athia as well. And he was the anchor allowing the other batters to attack. And then this happened.
2: Oh, nice time shot there by they Just pushed away, but there'll be two or three in this. Have to be quick. And it's been given now. Well, that was it. he really wasn't going for that
1: third. After chasing the ball all the way back to the mid boundary, War had turned and thrown accurately and quickly with power to Bruce Reed, who completed the run out. But that wasn't the important wicket, Lamb was. And with 34 runs to get, Lamb had them close enough to perform another one of his last-over miracles. Until... Well, there we
2: are, the gentle, medium pace of Steve Waugh. The bounce of this pitch has
1: got slower and lower. It wasn't a slower one, but just a length ball that Lamb was trying to smash. And this meant that Australia had taken out their biggest threat, but Phil DeFreitas and John Embry were still there and scoring okay, until this... What happened here was Craig McDermott bowled a slower delivery. Embry dragged it to short mid-wicket. David Boone picked it up and hit the stumps at the bowler's end. It was exactly what Australia had been working on in one moment. Their anchors getting them runs. Their bowlers changing pace. Their fielders incredibly skillful. That had been the story all the way through the tournament. They were not one of the best teams, but they had worked out how to play one-day cricket in a way that no one else had really thought about at this point. This World Cup was the start of the new form of one-day international cricket. Politically, it would lead the way towards an India-centric version of the cricket we now have. But cricket-wise, Australia would change and then dominate ODI cricket with four of the next seven titles. And that all started with them as rank outsiders who actually prepared for a tournament by not drinking as much booze as they normally would.
2: by Foster, his job is bowling not batting, picked up on the deep cover boundary by Valletta. They take two and listen to the acclaim to be cheered by 90,000 spectators at Eden Gardens, Calcutta, and take your first World Cup. That is Australia's joy and England's misery.
1: Thanks for listening. This podcast has an ad-free version that you can get via Patreon, and there are many other extras involved with being a member over there. In fact, this show would not exist if Patreon members had not helped us at the beginning and continue to support us. Cricket history does not pay, so any help you can give will be massive, and you'll find a link in the show notes to subscribe. Remember to please review, follow, tell your friends and family, and just people that you meet in parties about our show. All of that helps us grow. Double Century episodes are written by either Abhishek Mukherjee or myself, sometimes both of us. And I am Jared Kimber, and this is part of my podcast network. The podcasts are overseen by Nick McCorriston, who also edits and produces Double Century. And C.S. Chuanza is our man for social media clips. If you like the Double Century podcast, on top of subscribing and supporting us, there's actually way more content like this on the Jared Kimber YouTube page.